Well, what a decade this last year has been, huh? Sometimes I look at the calendar and I go, was that really just a year ago? That, that can't be right. And then I start counting the days and then it's well-known fact in my house, I can't read a calendar. Uh, so I think maybe that really wasn't in last year, but it truly was. Uh, as we look over, and I'm sure we're all sick and tired of hearing about the new normal and wondering, is anything ever going to get to be normal again? And, and what all that looks like, because in the last year we've gone through so many experiences, so many things in the life of our church, in the lives of our families, and our homes. There's been job layoffs. There, there, there's been bad diagnoses of health. There, there's been challenges to deal with all of that. There's been loved ones and neighbors passing away and not being able to go to funerals and, and mourn them or celebrate their life with, with those we care about. There may have even been COVID diagnosis in your family, in your home, or somebody that you know. For my family, all of those were the reality of last year. Many of those within a six-month time frame. We started the year by celebrating the birth of our third child in the end of January, I think the 25th. Don't quote me on that. Again, can't read calendars. Uh, sometime around January. Celebrate his life. We're about to bring him home. The world shuts down. We've got a new baby at home and... I get laid off from my job. Live in that reality for a couple of months. And during that time, I decide, okay, well, I can't use time as an excuse anymore. Uh, I figure I haven't seen a doctor in about a decade. I should probably go just get a checkup. We're looking over everything. Everything looks fine. And then I mention, hey, there, there, there's something right here on my collarbone. It, it doesn't really bother me, but, but maybe we should check it out. We should look at it. The doctor kind of paused and started asking some diagnostic questions, and I didn't think anything of it. And he says, okay, well, well here's what we're going to do. We're going to start running some tests. Is that okay with you? And I think, well, I mean, what else am I going to do right now? I'm not working, got nothing better to do. Uh, so, yeah, why not? Well, as we start doing tests and I start paying more attention to the type of tests that are being run, it's pretty apparent what the doctors are thinking. It's that word nobody wants to hear. We're thinking maybe there's a type of cancer that I have. I get hired back on to my job in June. And then in July, just a couple days before my wife and I are going to celebrate our anniversary, I get a phone call from a doctor at UK. He says, we got the biopsy results back. It's cancer. I said, okay. Okay. Now, we've been preparing ourselves for this for a long time, but... We still weren't sure what to do with it. We, we still weren't sure what it meant going forward, what the, the, prog the prognosis was. We weren't sure of any of that. We just knew, okay, this is, we, we'd been looking for cancer. We just didn't know what type. Now we know. And so we got the, the doctor's appointment scheduled. And, and, and so many of our churches and our family immediately began praying, began checking on us, began encouraging us. We go to the doctor's office and, and we sit down and he says, okay, uh, we know you've been worried about this type, this type, whatever. Um, you have stage four lymphoma. He says, now, that sounds really scary. It kind of is, but it's kind of not. We said, okay, that's good. Uh, we feared it was something much worse, but still to hear the words, you have stage four of any type of cancer, it's not a day you want to have. Especially not one when you just started a job back and you have a newborn at home with two other siblings. So we hear all of that. 
And immediately, the question many people asked us is, what do you do? How do you even handle that? Well, thankfully, we had a lot of people in our lives who told us the right answer. We had a lot of people in our lives who have gone through something similar or were going through something similar. And they said, you know what to do. It's the same thing you do every day you get out of bed. And no, this isn't some self-help talk I'm giving you. It's not just, oh, you get out of bed and put one foot in front of the other. No, it's, it's, it's a, in some ways, more simple answer than that. And in some ways, it's a much more complex answer than that. He said, you hope. Now, when I say you hope in that moment, I don't mean the type of hope that many of us had last night when we were watching the Cats play going, I hope they don't blow this again. Because if you're like me, you just know what's happening. It's inevitable, okay? I don't mean that kind of trivial hope. Like, we, we, we hope this works out well. That, that, that we hope that because I slept through my alarm this morning, I hope the professor is also late. Or I hope there's not traffic on my way to work. It's not that kind of hope. A lot of times when we look at Scripture, we read about this hope that the writers of Scripture have. We read about hoping in Christ. We read about hoping in the great promise of the Messiah. That word hope that is used there often means trusting in the most sure of promises. It means that you can take this reality to the bank. It's chiseled in stone. It's never going to change. That when when the answer is, what do you do in a moment like that, you hope. The answer is you look at Jesus and say, it's already taken care of. You look and say, my hope is in him. The sure and steady anchor that will not be moved. That's what you do. You hope in the Lord. We looked this morning at Psalm 23 and we we asked, okay, what does it mean to hope in the Lord like that? How can you really hope in the Lord like that when all else around you seems shaky ground? We get to Psalm chapter 23, and we don't really know at what point in his life that David wrote this. It could have been uh, uh, many different times, but he gets to this point. Psalm 23, he writes down the declaration, The Lord is my shepherd. Now, it's important to see the, the, the language here is used and what person David is writing in. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. Most of the Bible, and we we usually miss this as a culture because we want to make everything about us. We want to make it as if the entire Bible is really our story. But most of the Bible is written about you, y'all, as it should be translated. The plural, y'all, the church. But here David writes and says, the Lord is my shepherd. This is one of those instances we're supposed to look at the scripture and say, yes, mine. I can reach out and say, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord cares for me. The Lord guides me. He knows where I am. Jesus would later say, I am the good shepherd. The sheep know my voice. They hear me and I know them. He knows you. Charles Spurgeon said of this verse, If the Lord be no one else's shepherd, he be mine. Again, notice the the possessive here. The Lord is my shepherd. But that's not enough for David to declare that. What does he say very next thing? I shall not want. Now, another way this could have been translated is, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. There is nothing I don't have. If the Lord be my shepherd, I have everything I need. 
I have everything I could ever ask for. I have everything I could ever hope for. If all I have is Jesus, I don't need nothing else. That's the hope we talk about here. When, when life gets tough, we say, the Lord is my shepherd. He is there for me. He knows me. I know his voice. He knows my voice. He is mine. And i got nothing else I need or want because all I need or want is in Jesus. He's greater than anything else. Jesus is better. So David makes this claim, and, and, and so often in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, you'll see a claim made, and then you'll see the supporting evidence. And so David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, of course, when we hear that phrase in the Old Testament, to hear someone as your shepherd, it means a lot of different things than it does today. For people my age and older, you think of the precious moments all at your grandparents' house. Or you think of the, the little posters that used to hang in the Sunday school room of the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus with not a scratch or a scuff on him and the perfect little white sheep with his wool ready to go to market and they're just sitting there cuddling in the grass and everything's fun. That's not quite what the shepherd was. Remember when, when David went to King Saul and said, let me fight Goliath. And he said, well, you're just a shepherd. And David said, listen, I've killed a bear and I've killed a lion with my bare hands. Precious moments, doll ain't going to do that. But a shepherd will. A shepherd will do that. And so David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He will protect me. He will guide me. He will care for me. I will not want because he is my shepherd. I know that he knows my needs. I know that I won't want. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Again, the imagery here is that, that the shepherd is walking the sheep to the green pasture. Y'all, I, I'm not a farmer. I don't know a lot about sheep. I've never grown sheep. That might surprise some of you. I'm sure it doesn't. But from what I hear, sheep are not the smartest of animals. Okay, they'll, they'll eat anything, even if it'll kill them. They, they need basically 24-7 care. They're, they're basically nature's newborn babies. Okay, they need 24-7 care or else they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to do something dumb. And so they've got to be led into green pastures to be given good food to eat that's good for them. They've got to be made to, what does it say in verse 2? To lie down in the green pastures. That, that Jesus will often say to us, you need to rest. You need to be made to lay down. We have a code in our house that we know when one of our kids is tired. When we hear unprompted from one of the children, I'm not tired. <laughs> okay, it's nap time. <laughs> but how often we do the same. We just keep running and going and trusting in ourselves to do things. We, we think that, that if we're healthy enough that we'll avoid the diagnosis. If we have enough in our bank account, the job layoff won't hurt us. We do all of these things and meanwhile Jesus is going, you need to rest. No, 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 I don't. But listen, you need to rest. No, Jesus, I got this. Finally, he says, remember on the seventh day, I created everything and I rested. And you know another reason you need to rest? Because it reminds you, you're not God. Every one of us last night went to sleep. We got up this morning and guess what? The world kept moving. It didn't need you and it didn't need me. But we often don't act like that. We think we have to be in control of everything. But the Lord says, you rest and let me show you I got it. Let me show you the world is not in your hands, but it's in mine. And you rest in me. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Again, we, we, we've talked about this often through the book of Mark, how waters is often used as a form of judgment in the Old Testament. We think of the 
world being flooded in Noah's day. We, we think of all the times the waters raged. But here, David says that Jesus leads us where? Besides still waters. This is not into judgment. He leads us into refreshment. He leads us into himself and the peace that only he can give. The, the, all throughout this psalm is echoes of a promise when Jesus says, I will make all things new. So that Jesus will lead us into the time where the waters of judgment will not overflow us, but he will look at us and say, come, my son, come, my child, here are green pastures, here are still waters, rest in me. What else do you need? But he continues, and listen to the, the beauty of this. It says, he leads me beside still waters, verse 3, he restores my soul. Life is going to beat you down. Life is going to make you weary. But He will restore your soul. He will restore your soul. Verse 3 continues, it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. God is my shepherd, we shall not want. He leads us, He restores us for His name's sake. It's His reputation on the line. So when you get those news, you, you hope. And, and I'm not going to lie and say that when we got that, that news, I immediately said, well, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We're going to be okay, it's all good. No, because what often happens is, is we forget verses 1 through 3. We, we, we kind of file those away, and, and, and when the doctor says it's cancer... Or, or whatever other terminal illness you want to put in there, whatever other hardship it is, whatever that fear you have is, when the doctor, when the lawyer, when whoever it is says that, you automatically think, well, Jesus ain't my shepherd then because I'm going through trouble. Remember, if Jesus was my shepherd, then I'd be in green pastures somewhere, right? If Jesus was my shepherd, I'd be sitting beside some still waters somewhere. Well, maybe Jesus isn't my shepherd if I'm going through trouble. That's where verse 4 comes in. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. See, don't miss what happens in verse 3. The very end of verse 3, what does it say? He leads me, right? He leads me. So when someone leads you, what does that mean? You, you follow them, right? You're not in control. You're following where they go. Again, we, we, we have kids, so sometimes when we walk, they, they actually are paying attention and doing good, and they follow us. You know, they, they follow right in line. They lead us wherever we go, wherever I go, they're following right behind. But now all of a sudden we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. And when we, we want to step back. I wanted to step back and go, God, this ain't right. Don't you know what I've already gone through this year? Don't you know what's already happened? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Why am I in this valley? Well, who's leading the way? Now, I don't say that to make you think, Ooh, Jesus is going to lead me somewhere I don't want to go. Why, why is he going to do this? Is, is, is Jesus sadistic? Does he just want me in pain and torture all the time? Why would he lead me in dark valleys? When God created the world, there has only ever been one man who has walked through this life without sin. 
But there has never been any man to walk through this life without suffering. And notice again in verse 4 what it says. It says, even though I walk through the what? The valley of the shadow of death. The shadow of the dog ain't going to bite you. And here you're in the valley of the shadow of death. The shadow of death, it, this was a, a common uh, idiom used in the Old Testament, this valley of the shadow of death. It, it was commonly used to describe the deepest of darkest places, the, the, this deep darkness. It, you could almost describe it as just like that depression that you have when you just you can't see the light, you don't want to do anything, you can't get up in the morning. It could be anything that causes this, but it's this deep, depressive darkness that you just can't see the way out of. And you don't know the way out of it. You're, you're looking for anything. You're reaching for anything. You can't get out of there. But what verse 4 says is even though I walk through that, I will fear no evil. Because the shadow ain't going to hurt me. You know why else I won't do that? Because verse 4 doesn't just stop with that. For you are with me. Again, notice the shift here. Earlier it's been, Lord is my shepherd. He does these things. He does that thing. The Lord does these things. And now David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, even though days are going to be hard, even though life is going to be hard, even though you're going to hear the words you don't want to hear, I won't fear evil because you are with me. I won't fear it because I know who I'm following. I won't fear the absolute worst case scenario. Because you are with me. It's a picture of, of if you've ever seen a little kid get scared, what's the first thing that they want to do? Where's mommy or daddy? They're looking for him. And they will run up and they will grab onto that leg. They will grab onto that hand. And you can watch them. The situation hadn't changed. The only thing that's changed is who they're holding on to now. But everything's better. They know if mommy and daddy are here, I'm safe. I can make it. It's going to be okay. I know if I go through the valley of shadow of death and I'm holding on to Jesus, but more importantly, he's holding on to me because he's my shepherd. He won't let me go. Even though sheep are dumb and they have a tendency to wonder. We sing songs sometimes on to wonder, Lord, I feel it. But the Lord is my shepherd. He's going to hold on to me. I will fear no evil. I won't fear a valley of the shadow of death. I may not be happy going through it, but I won't fear it because I know we're going to get through to the other side. He says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, this is the imagery of a good shepherd. He had a rod and a staff. A rod was for protection from others, from the bear, from the lion. The staff was protection from himself, the sheep. This was the staff that said, uh-uh, don't go over that way, come back. This one said, no, 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 nothing good for you over there. Come back over this way. He's saying, when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I know that the Lord is there to protect me and to keep me close to him. Because I'm going to be prone to wonder. I'm going to lay in bed some days and go, God, why am I dealing with this? I'm going to look at my kids and go, I grew up without a dad for the most part. And I swore I would never do that to my kids. And now I might not have a choice in that. Why? But the Lord said, I got you. 
You are in my hand. No matter what happens, you are in my hand. I am in control, not you. And one of the good things about suffering is the Lord always tells us, He says, you're going to suffer. First Timothy tells us that. It says, indeed, anyone who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, if Jesus, the sinless Savior of God, had to suffer, and suffer more than any man probably ever suffered, what makes you think you're better than Jesus? And that you're going to get out of suffering. No, no. See, there's a purpose to it. God says that whatever happens, He's got your good in mind. Romans 8 tells us that, that there will be trouble, trouble will come, but it's for the good of those who love Christ Jesus and are called according to His purpose. Your suffering is not a surprise to Jesus. Your suffering is not beyond the reach of Jesus. He's got the entire world in His hands. He is your shepherd. We trust on Him. We lean on Him. We, we trust in Him to do all these things. He's given us His rod and His staff for protection and for comfort. But again, when you're in that valley, it's really hard to see it. And there are times when you're dealing with that deep, dark valley, you're going to go, I don't feel like God is my shepherd. I need something to assure me that He is. There were times sitting there getting the, the drugs for the chemotherapy that I thought, I don't know if I can do this one more time. And I'll be honest, I would see other people going into the infusion center and I would go, I don't know that I will ever see that person again. It doesn't look like they're going to make it. And I would consider myself lucky and blessed to be going, what I'm dealing with is not anywhere near as bad as what they're dealing with. And understand, it's easier to stand here now on the other side of it with a clean bill of health and to say, oh yeah, this is all great. But when you're in that moment, when, when you can't see through the valley of the shadow of death, when it's that deepest darkness that you just can't see, you think, God, give me anything. Give me a sign to let me know that this is going to end. Let me see something that this is in your hands, that this is in your plan. God, I don't know if I can trust you anymore because of what's going on. I, I, I am not so sure that you are not bigger than my circumstances. Now, we won't say that because we're good church folk. And we know that Jesus is better than our circumstances, but you're going to feel it. And you might dare to say, Jesus, I don't know if you can get me out of this one. But in that moment, in that deepest of darkness, if you squint just enough, there's a light at the end of it. No, it's not the train at the end of the tunnel. There's a light coming from the darkest of places there's ever been. There's a light coming from a tomb. John 1.5 says, The darkness will not overcome it. 
See, we know that even on the darkest of days, there was a light that came forth, and it was the light of men, and life was given through him, and the darkness will not overcome it. John 1, 4 through 5. We walk through that valley of the shadow of death. We won't fear evil because Jesus is with us, because he's been through it. Because he has done it. He has walked through the darkest of valleys. He hasn't tasted the shadow of death. He has tasted death itself. One of the worst things about going through cancer is just how it changes everything about reality. You want to just hang on to as much normalcy as you can. You want to just pretend like nothing is different. But everything is. Your body aches in ways you didn't think of. You you think you're doing okay. You think you look good. Then you look in the mirror and you go, I look like death. You're not supposed to have that gray complexion. I appreciate all of y'all whenever you would ask me how I was doing. And I said, I'm doing great. Not one of you said, well, you look like death. So thank you for that. Uh, But there are so many times that you get that, that, that just the struggle, everything being changed. For for me, the regimen that I was on, it left this taste in my mouth that I had just constantly. I would wake up in the middle of the night and just be reminded, oh, that's right, I've got cancer. I would try to eat some of my favorite foods and, oh, that's right, I've got cancer. Nothing tastes the same way. But in that moment, I was reminded, I may have tasted death, but Jesus has swallowed it up in victory. So again, we walk through this psalm again. Look at, verses, look at verse 4 again. This was written by a shepherd. This was written to a people who understood what shepherding meant. And I'm thinking now that as, as David wrote this, he was thinking of a shepherd, but it wasn't himself. He says that even though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he would fear no evil for his rod and his staff are with him. They comfort him. I think he was thinking of another shepherd named Moses. Moses, who was called out of the wilderness to go back and speak to Pharaoh to be a deliverer for the people. Moses, who who fled Egypt in fear, now is at a burning bush. He can't escape God. God calls him and says, Moses, you're going to go do this. And Moses is like, God, you got the wrong guy. I can't talk. You need my brother. He's from the tribe of the priests. He's the good God, not me. I'm just a shepherd. And he thought of every excuse he could. He had a rod in his hand. And Jesus said, or, or God, through the burning bush, Jesus through the burning bush. When Moses said, how are you going to believe me? He said, you got a rod in your hand? He said, yeah, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and became a serpent. And what did Moses do? Like some others of us who don't like snakes, he ran and got scared. God said, pick it up by the tail. And he did and became a staff again. He said, when you go into Pharaoh, you show him that Yahweh sent you. That I am, that I am sent you. The name of God that is unspoken through much of the Old Testament, which, by the way, when it says the Lord is my shepherd, what name do you think David used there? Yahweh is my shepherd. So Moses goes, he throws the rod down. Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing, but Moses' rod eats the snakes of the other ones, and he picks it up. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but finally he relents and lets the people go. So Moses is leading them, and what happens? Pharaoh changes his mind. Moses and the people are at the Red Sea. There is water of judgment in front of them. There's an army behind them. What does God tell Moses? Take that rod of protection. Stand before the waters of judgment. Lift your arms up and watch the waters part. The waters part and the people walk through the waters of judgment 
onto the other side, and Pharaoh's armies are drowned in the water of judgment behind. But of course, like we do, Israel forgot. Later, they're in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. They're complaining against Moses. Why did you bring us out here? We want to go back and eat the garlic and onions in Egypt. We were much happier as slaves than we are now. And so God sends fiery serpents into their camp as a source of judgment to remind them of sin. Remember, it was the serpent who brought sin into the world, the serpent who sent to Adam and Eve. And here the serpent is, again, biting their heels. And they say, deliver us, Moses. Yeah, we were just complaining against you. We, we don't really mean it. You're a good guy. Deliver us. God said, make an image of a bronze serpent and put it up. And whoever is bitten by the serpents and looks at it, they shall live. So I think as people read this Psalm of David, they thought, oh, that sounds a lot like Moses. But as we read it, we ought to be thinking of a better Moses. We ought to be thinking of the one who came, whose heel would be bruised by the serpent, but he would crush its head. The one who was nailed to a cross with his rod and his staff and his hand spread out for us. It wasn't the shadow of death that he faced. It was the literal death that he faced, the death that we all deserve as he has hung there on the cross in the same posture that Moses was facing for the people he stands hanging as our judgment hanging as the serpent in the cross or in the wilderness so that the people may believe and pass through the waters of judgment into eternal life jesus himself spoke of this in john chapter 3 verse 14 he says and moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life we all know the next verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When I said earlier we hope, that's what we hope in. We hope in the Jesus who took the place as the good shepherd as he would tell his disciples. The one better than Moses, the one better than David. The one whose light shines forth in the world and the darkness is not overcome. And no matter what you are dealing with in your life right now, and I had to tell myself this almost daily, no matter what I was dealing with in those moments, my worst day had already happened. I was crucified with Jesus, dead and buried. But ain't no grave going to hold us down anymore. Jesus burst through death burst through sin, burst out of the tomb, and he is whispering, even today, behold, I make all things new. Everything sad is going to come untrue. That's the hope that we hope in. But we don't just hope looking backwards. Verses 5 and 6, David says, Now you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, it's really easy in our experiences and our times to, to get bogged down with what we're dealing through and forget the promise of God. And sometimes we'll look at it and go, Okay, yes, my worst day has already happened, but man, I wish days would be better right now. I lived that for quite a while. There, we, we, we learned very quickly there was a cyclical motion to the way I dealt with chemotherapy. There's a lot of anxiety. There, there, there was a lot of dread going into each treatment. 
in the time of COVID, so we couldn't have anybody in the hospital with me. I'd get dropped off, have to walk to the infusion room, and somehow find my way back after getting all kinds of treatment and all kinds of Benadryl, so I was half asleep. Still don't know how we did that, but thankful for whoever took me home. Uh, so have that anxiety, have that dread, have that worry, and then for three or four days, I'm basically dead. Just slept, barely ate anything, didn't do anything. My body is weakened. And then slowly start coming back. There's a lot of dread of, man, I wish this was over. Man, I didn't wish I didn't have to deal with this. My kids just want to play with me. They don't understand what's going on. I want to play with them. Uh, I, you know, my, my wife is trying to manage a household with three crazy kids and take care of everything and, and, and do the things I used to do as well. It, it's hard. I want to be able to help her. Can't do anything. And then slowly be able to get to a point where I can, you know, put my own shoes on and, and feed myself. And then we're right back in that cycle again. And we just hope that it's going to end at some point. Jesus speaks to us this morning and he says, it will end at some point. And guess what? Spoiler alert. It's going to get real good. It's going to get really good. David shifts a little bit here and he says, yeah, we've been through the valley of the shadow of death. We're making our way through that. I'm not fearing anything because I know the shadow can't touch me. Jesus has already been bitten by death and he's already overcome it. Ain't nothing can hold me back now if I trust in him. If the Lord is my shepherd, ain't nobody going to touch me. Nothing bad can happen to me. And by the way, the shepherd is leading us somewhere. Jesus at the table before he went to the cross looked at his disciples and said, I'm going somewhere where you can't go. And after that, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Jesus is getting the dinner ready. He's just waiting to come back and, and make sure we've all RSVP'd and we're ready for the party. He says here, the present, And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Again, this is a picture of, of something in that culture when someone invited you as a guest. They went all out to take care of you. And, and they were in charge of you the whole time. So even if your enemy was sitting at the table with you, your enemy wasn't going to touch you because of who the host was. Because you were in charge, or the host was in charge of you. Your life was in the host's hands. And here he says, I don't care if my enemies are around. I'm in Jesus' hands. It don't matter. Said that you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Again, we're at this table as a guest of honor. If someone came in who is honorable, if it was like, you know, the social elite of the day, you would come in and you would anoint their head with oil and say, I'm so happy you're here. I can't believe you're in my house. I can't believe you'd let me serve you. I can't believe, this is amazing. I can't believe you're here. And here, David is saying that the Savior of the world, the one who spoke everything into existence, is going to look at you at his table and treat you as the honored guest. Why? Because you're covered by his blood in judgment to be anointed by his oil and brotherhood. He looks at you now and doesn't call you sinner. He looks at you now and says, That's my brother. That's my sister. We belong to the same family. And we're going to eat and we're going to feast and we're going to party because the bounty is good when you're with the Lord. When sin and death can't touch you, 
when you have nothing to be fearful of, when you are lying in those green pastures, when you're beside the still waters, when your soul is restored, when He has led you in the path of righteousness for whose name's sake? His name's sake. It's a family name now. You're part of that family. It's for His name and His name's sake. And He says, come eat at my table as family. We're going to dine and this is going to be amazing. Verse 6, David gets to a point. He says, I can't, I, what else do you say? Uh, you, you, you can't get better than that. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. No matter what happens. Again, like he's already forgotten about the valley of the shadow of death because he's looking forward to that future hope. He says, where I am now can't be as bad as the tomb that Jesus was in. And where I'm going, nothing's ever going to get better than that. So goodness and mercy are going to follow me no matter what I win in the end. Who, who cares about being on the right side of history? I want to be on the right side of Jesus. He says, it's going, I got you. Come, I am your shepherd. Trust in me. Goodness and mercy so follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The, the picture here, the wording here is that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever unto forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Nothing is going to separate us from the Lord now. We're going to walk through some valleys. And you're going to think you're going to be out of them. This past year, right before New Year's Eve, we went to the doctor and found out that the cancer is gone. Praise God. And so my wife and I said, we've had one kind of a year. And we're going to celebrate New Year's Eve. We've been around Pastor Jeremy long enough to know that sometimes you have to celebrate like a little bit of a redneck. So we bought a bunch of fireworks. And we said, we're going to blow this year away. Just fireworks everywhere. So we celebrate that. Somebody's house. We go home. We're maybe an hour into the new year. Oh, man, this house is really cold. Furnace quit while we're setting off fireworks. Welcome to 2021. Only good things from here. But you know what? In the house of the Lord, ain't none of that going to matter. All the troubles we go through, all of the problems that we're going to see, all of the hardship we're going to have, we get a little picture of what it's going to be like in the house of the Lord forever in Revelation chapter 21. Verses 3 through 4 says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. For he will make all things new. So we've gone from the valley to the banquet table. How? We hope. We hope in the surest of things there is to hope in. I read a story this week about a little boy who was asked to memorize some scripture to, to share with his church. He was supposed to memorize Psalm 23. He worked on it, he worked on it, he got it, and so then... Sunday morning came, he gets up on stage and he looks out and he goes, oh, 
That's a lot of people. He got scared. He forgot what he was supposed to say. In a moment, his entire account has changed. He got real proud. He said, all right, I'm going to do this. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And I ain't going to worry about it. <laughs> and that's the message of Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd. I ain't going to worry about a thing. <laughs> 